0: Okay, now you sound normal.
1: Thank God. Okay.
0: okay. What do I sound like?
1: You sound normal too, which is also a good thing.
0: Okay. All right. Let's okay. Guys, let, let's let's are all we pretend normal? let's all pretend that we're professionals and we're doing a professional <laughs> show right now. <laughs> um uh, uh Chris, yes. are you recording?
1: Uh I, I in fact I am. It's the only way I could hear your audio, okay. so I am definitely recording.
0: Okay, I am not recording because, as we've established, things are fucked over here.
2: Yeah, you're fucked.
0: Okay, (laughs) then uh, if if Noah is good to go, Noah, confirm you're good to go. I am good to go. I'm good to go.
1: Welcome, everybody, to the TechMeme Ride Home Experience for August 11th. We are joined today by Noah Smith, uh, economist, I suppose. Uh, That's at least how Brian talks about you, but um, we've got... A number of interesting topics, conversations, mostly about the economy, about where we're at, where it's going. It feels like it's been quite the roller coaster so far this year. Um, it is somewhat the doldrums of August, and yet the news and the hits keep on coming. So, Brian, where are you at? How are you doing?
0: Uh, I'm. I'm. I, I could be doing better audio wise, but um. <laughs> hey Noah, I I do think of you as an economist. Are you? Are you literally are? Are you literally that, or are you just an economics columnist? I I self-identify as an economics <laughs> blogger. <laughs> uh. um, I uh,
2: because con- too many people identify as economists who don't deserve it, and I'm yeah. you know, for example, Ben Stein, who was just an actor, identified as an economist because he had played a boring teacher for about five minutes in the movie Ferris Bueller's Day Off, <laughs> and um, and basically, I'm trying to fight against this trend by not. Uh, claiming stolen valor here. Uh, I was a finance professor for a couple of years, and then left to basically explain economics to the world, which I'm doing right now. But I don't think that my um, my expertise that that I that I need the title of economist to boost my my credibility here.
1: Ah, fair. Well, uh, I, I will. I will. I guess. Uh, uh, what's the word? Not ascend. It's a. It's an end ending word. A
0: seed. A seed.
1: Okay. Sure. Well, I'll take back whatever I said.
0: Uh, Rescind, I think. Rescind is the word. Oh, it's
1: that, an ind. Even worse. Okay. Well, you know, continue.
0: Listen, Noah. For our purposes, close enough.
2: MFR. <laughs> I, um, I can play an economist on TV better than Ben Stein can. I, was I was agree. Say, you
1: play an economist uh, on Substack, so that seems good enough for me.
0: All right, Mister Mister Economist on TV. Uh, let's let's get the hardest question out of the way. The 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 one that made us want to talk to you. But what I've been talking about for two weeks. Are we in a recession? Yes or no, but then I have follow ups. Well, I mean, recession, there's basically
2: three definitions. There's does the NBER say we're in a recession? And the answer is no. There's uh, have we had two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth, uh, which is sort of the folk definition, uh, which the answer is maybe. We'll see when the revisions come out. And the third question is are we producing at below trend level of GDP which is probably yes a little bit so um, the answer is uh, maybe we're we might be in a recession depending on how you want to define it but we're not in the kind of downturn that really people associate with the word recession they think of the Great Recession of 2008 nine they right. think of you know like other downturns like the you know the downturn in the early 90s and these big painful things that put a lot of people out of work and so far, Nothing like that is happening, and it may happen, but it's not happening yet.
0: Um, I'm, I'm going to reference pieces that you've written all night long, but um, I, I thought that was interesting. Your piece on Are We in a Recession is the the trend line, which is to say that like when you're in a really nasty recession, lines go down, all the lines go down. And that's sort of what is perplexing folks like me right now, is not all the lines are going down, and so. But what you're saying is, is that if you look, if you define a recession as um, an economy is generally going this way, the trend is going this way, and then it's not quite going in the direction that it was, uh, but it's still going up. That could be a form of recession. Is that what you're saying? I, I'm saying
2: what I'm saying is that the term recession is there's no official government definition of that term. Mm -hmm. Um, and there is, and there's no, there's no alpha, as they say in, in knowing whether we're in a recession or not, the, the word, you know, when there's a big painful downturn of the kind that we really care about, you'll know it. It's, uh, um, which reminds me of this, uh, French guy who said, you know, when everybody loved to say God is dead, the Frenchman said, uh, he said, when God dies, you'll know it. (laughs) <laughs> you know when there's a when there's a recession when there's a recession worthy of the name you'll know it. Whether
0: we're in a technical recession or not doesn't right. matter okay. at okay. all. Okay, so uh, basically the reason folks like me are confused is, uh, and I know this is controversial, inflation zero percent month over month, uh, but also the consumer still seems to be spending. We added half a million jobs. In July. Uh, we're basically close to full employment. Um, and yet, for, for the purposes of this show, all of the biggest tech players are talking about weakness, softness. Um, we obviously have layoffs in some of the uh, recent high-flying uh, bubbly uh, tech players. So is it possible in the way that, you know, uh, when, when COVID hit that, uh, oh my God, uh, we we clear it clearly are in a recession, but all of the tech players, uh, had record earnings. I was assuming that tech is so integrated into the economy that tech would be the canary in the coal mine, et cetera, et cetera. What I'm asking is, is it possible that we are in a recession that is Sector specific, where there are things happening to tech that might not be happening to the broader economy. Sure, absolutely, there can be
2: uh, sectoral downturns. For example, in 2015-16, um, we did not have the NBR didn't call a recession. We didn't have two quarters of negative GDP growth, but we saw the uh, the oil industry take a big, big hit, um, and it didn't really spread to the rest of the economy. And we can see the same thing in, uh, with tech here. Um, because you know, you've seen this big tech stock decline, um, and we saw, you know, basically startups are, uh, are having trouble raising money, uh, you know, VCs are having trouble deploying money, um, with any confidence. And so we've seen it, people are getting their salaries cut, there's hiring freezes. So I think that times are not great in the tech industry right now. We are not, we're no longer in a boom. Um, whether or not it doesn't look apocalyptic yet. I mean, you know, Google is not like laying a ton of people off or whatever. Like we're not, we're not seeing the tech industry go down in flames. It's not, um, it's not yet to the level of, uh, like late 2000, 2001, right? We're not there. Um,
0: Uh, 2001, um, being like sort of an analogy where there was a recession that was sort of led by a tech bubble. Although, you know, the icing was put on the cake by uh, 9-11 and, and, and that sort of follow-on recession, if you want to say it that way. But if if tech is so integrated into the economy, as we've all been assuming, um, and uh, so many tech jobs are – I think we're approaching like maybe 200,000 by some measure uh, tech layoffs and things like that. Like if, if this is – if this is sort of like um, I don't know a, a hiccup, uh, I think the the, the the Nasdaq is already back into bull market territory or something like that. Like, should um, should investors in the private market um, be paying attention I- anymore to to what the the public markets are doing? Or does everybody just need to do what sort of like I've been hearing VCs have been doing all summer is like, let's just take a pause and see where we're at in, in the fall.
2: Well, obviously, you know, VCs know that better than I do. You know, they know their own uh, opportunity set much better than I know. But um, I, so, so the, the answer is that I don't know. Um, I'd say that in terms of earnings, we've seen earnings disappoint, but not fall off a cliff. Like there's no, certainly nothing compared to, you know, what, what every company experienced, including tech companies in 2008 and 2009. Um, Earnings are, you know, they're, they're like somewhat disappointing. I think what had happened is that when you look at the, the price to revenue multiples in the, uh, in, in sort of like, um, you know, growth equity stocks, like, you know, Shopify or Peloton or Coinbase, or a lot of these recently IPO medium big companies that were that people had very high expectations for. When you just looked at those multiples, it was very obvious that people were pricing in a ton of growth. And I think that now that the disappointing earnings numbers don't say that, you know, these companies are not going to make money at all, that they're just going to go out of business. We haven't seen big companies go out of business. Um, but then but I do think they sort of put a damper on those expectations of massive growth. Mm -hmm. And so so you see multiples coming down to a more reasonable level, uh, which means that stocks drop. But that that doesn't necessarily mean that companies are going to, you know, start laying people off Um,
0: or or, uh, or go go into business, because remember, like the the 2001 example is like 90 percent of the uh, tech bubble IPOs, they basically went away. right? The, I, I it, like uh, using Shopify as an example. No one thinks Shopify is going to go away. I did,
1: the, the difference of Brian right, is like back then, first of all, you had a number of different market factors to consider. One was just the immaturity of the overall technology and people's willingness to adopt and use it. Uh, you also had a number of really, really bad ideas that were searching for customers and users. And when you put internet kind of, you know, in front of or adjacent to or dot com in your name, suddenly investors threw money at it, sort of like Web3 or crypto more recently. So there's sort of like this speculation on what's going to happen this hope that you're going to land on you know 21 or something and it's going to like pay off for all the bad bets that you made whereas i think what noah is saying is that we're kind of in a different phase of maturation when it comes to these these products and these companies and they're not going to go away like they used to because people like there is right. both product market fit there is broad usage there is ways in which these companies are buttressing a lot of other people's businesses however the cheap growth that i think people thought they could buy at the start of the pandemic you know both with the influx of, you know, capital from, um, you know, the U S treasury, but also just sort of like, wow, everyone's like online. And now all those things that we thought were going to take 10 to 15 years are happening now. Suddenly people are like, well, I want to buy that because that's where the growth is going to be. And now of course we're sort of, you know, going back to the the norm. And it seems like a lot of like, we're sort of back to the growth trajectory that we might've been on previously, which wasn't sort of
0: astronomical, but it's reasonable. People got ahead of their skis a little bit. Like, uh, right. No, no, no. What do you, what do you think of the idea that everybody got head by the idea, by COVID times? Uh, oh, we, we we had a decades worth of growth in eighteen months or something like that, and it turns out no, we're just going to revert to the norm.
2: Oh, I mean, I think that was obviously part of it, especially for companies like Zoom, right, um, or Peloton, that uh, really are their business model is like stay at home, don't go out. That that wasn't gonna last forever. Like people weren't gonna hide in their homes forever. This isn't China. (laughs) Um, So then, like, yeah, it was. We were gonna go back out again. So I think that that was just, uh, um, you know, in in a like when you expectations uh, um, mean that often the price of a stock is set by the most optimistic Mm -hmm. investor. Unless you have a wave of short sellers willing to come in and trade against them and drive the price back down. But then that you know there's, there's lots of reasons why that doesn't always happen. And so basically, if you have one person who says, I think Shopify is worth a price to revenue multiple of 80 or whatever it was, then I'll pay that. And then they pay. And they don't pay for a lot because I think um, what people watching these prices don't necessarily understand is that the amount of actual trading that happens here can be really small. You can have only a few shares. You can have a few optimists come in and buy a few shares, and if you don't have a lot of pessimists around, if you just have a few, if your trading is just a few optimists buying a few shares, then um, then that's going to just drive the price what, way what up. Is a because, few,
1: like like a hundred or like a hundred thousand. Well,
2: no, it, it. I mean, it depends on the on the volume, right? Okay. Like, uh, look at the shares outstanding, volume relative to mm-hmm. shares outstanding. Got it. I'm, I'm being I'm exaggerating here just to, right. to, to illustrate to the principle. Point. Obviously, yeah. a stock like Shopify is going to have lots of, you know, like thousands of people trading it or whatever. But what I'm saying is that, um, you, in order to drive the price down so that the optimists don't just rule everything, you need some short interest. You need shorts. Um, that's why, you know, like it's a little, it's, you know, like Elon Musk is always mad at the, the Tesla shorts. Right? right. But then, but the thing is that there's, there's probably herd behavior among shorts too, because there's a, uh, you know, there's a sort of coordination thing with the shorts where, um, you know, because shorts have limited liquidity, they've got to like all sort of go together and short together, um, you know, or else they can get broken, as happened with the uh, the GameStop uh, short break that kicked off that meme stock, blah, blah, blah. And so anyway, the point is that shorts will often clump together. So there might be no shorts watching Spotify or only a few. There might be only a few shorts watching Coinbase. There might be only a few shorts watching like Roblox or whatever, right? And so... Um, if you only have a few shorts watching it, they're like, I'm not going to trade against this mighty tide. Mm. And so nobody trades against the mighty tide. And basically then, you know, some, some negative growth numbers come in or some, um, uh, some sort of numbers come in and surprise on the downside on earnings on earnings growth. Right. And then, uh, and then the optimist's like, ah, oh, I guess I was wrong to be so optimistic and they walk away and it's not a lot of money. And then. Everyone else is like, oh, my God, the prices went down so much. And then everyone gets really non-optimistic. And then maybe the shorts come in and can push the price down even more. But the point is that a lot of the reasons why we think that markets should be efficient all the time don't really work because of this, of what we call limits to arbitrage. Because you don't have these these sort of like skeptical policemen
0: coming in and policing every stock simultaneously. And and. Maybe that's almost the whole point. Is that there was a, a period where Kathy Wood and 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 everybody in the in the COVID times was like line only goes up, and so it's it's just a reversion to the mean, um, not a recession. Is am I am I am I being well, too so, simplistic so about wanna,
1: that? Yeah, like I want to I want to jump into this a little bit because it what I'm wondering. And I think you know when Brian you started this out like is it a recession? One of the things that I have noticed in in the reporting about the recession is like the more you talk about it, again to, to Noah's framing, it sort of like sets your own expectations on what you expect to see, and so then you're looking for um, signs that reaffirm what you're kind of already anticipating. It's sort of like your fear kicks in, and then it's like looking for um, just reaffirmations of that. My question is actually more about the the way in which and. And I don't I, I don't know the answer to this. This is actually like hopefully like Noah can can help us with this. Like has the economy changed in such a material way that even thinking about it or describing uh you know sort of I don't know the US economy, if that is one thing, um, is going towards recession actually is no longer a useful way to think about our uh, economic experience because there is no national economic experience anymore. Interesting. Right? Like, one of the things that you you know we talked about is how this is sort of like, you know, the, the the we have like full employment, there's like far too many jobs, you know, and yet inflation is going up. And yet one of the ways I think to think about the jobs that are available is that there's like a lot of shit jobs that no one wants where there's no career opportunity and eventually they're gonna be obviated by automation and AI, anyways. So when it comes to also like thinking about employment, the way that we think about employment is also like not really that useful. I think economists have a way, and again, since you're not an economist, this is not gonna offend you, Noah, um, a way of reducing things down to, you know, quote unquote, like a a basket of goods. Well, if one of your goods is like an iPhone, that, 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 that good seems to me to be somewhat different than the other things that are in there. And so we are in a moment where I feel like we need to think about this more from like a patchwork, like it's almost like global warming. You know, like we're seeing all these different kind of environmental shocks happening at smaller levels And a recession is such a blunt way of describing economic uh, activity that's occurring, but it's so specific to different areas and regions. You know, maybe there is a Walmart super center or an Amazon fulfillment center or something. And in those places, maybe they are recessing, but maybe in other places they're growing. So I understand, you know, when we're talking about this, like, is the economy overall moving above the trend line or below the trend line? That's kind of how economics like economists think about it, but the way in which people are really living and experiencing this, it feels like that terminology doesn't really even make sense. So I'm, I'm wondering about that like is this actually a useful like term of art to even use in an era where we're so connected and where you know like you, you were talking about like gamestop and AMC that's like a localized economic phenomenon where people are playing a game in a very different way than the rest of the stock market might have been playing itself. Does that make sense?
2: Well, there, I think there's two, uh, two points here to make. Yeah. The first point is that when we're talking about a recession, we don't mean financial markets go down. Okay. Financial market crashes can cause a recession, but they, they themselves are not a recession. So um, a recession is when people lose their jobs and actual output slows down. Mm-hmm. Financial markets, in principle, can do whatever they want. In practice, financial market uh, you know, crashes will often, but not always, cause a recession. Um, and then uh, – so it's, it, those are two very different things, the financial economy and the real economy. They're connected, but they're not the same. Mm-hmm. Um, so we should never use the word recession to describe a financial market crash unless people are actually losing their jobs, et cetera. Mm. So that's one – that's point one. Point two is, yes, there, there's always local economic downturns, and these downturns don't even have to be short-term. They can be – you know, during many of our greatest economic years – in the late 20th century the city of detroit was sliding into decline and decay mm. and ooh, so ooh. i mean obviously there's stuff, stuff like that happens all the time and there's always sort of regional um you know downturns and things like that uh so so that's always happened um there's no real change in that in fact the 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 national economy is probably more correlated than it used to be it's probably more national than it used to be because we used to just not have as much interstate commerce. You know, we used to it used to be that California and New York were sort of doing their own things, and now they're pretty closely connected. Um, so, actually, I would say, if anything, uh, those sort of localized downturns are getting more are getting rarer and uh, less. You know, everything's getting more correlated. I think you can see that in the data pretty clearly. But um, in terms of whether or not the idea of a recession is out of date, no, definitely not um and the reason is because when there, you know um there are national economic forces that uh you know basically cause pain to the entire nation because uh monetary and fiscal policy are done at the national level Mm -hmm. california doesn't have its own currency and um its own fiscal policy is basically it has a balance you know has to balance its budget just like most states and um and that means that the uh, the key policy is really done at the federal level so what what happens uh, in, in modern recessions is that the Fed hits the zero lower bound. And so you have the Fed, um, which lowers interest rates to try to stimulate economic activity in response to like a financial crisis or something like that. And then, uh, um, and then it hits zero, and it can't lower interest rates below that, and so it starts doing funky stuff like quantitative easing, et cetera. But then that's, you know, you're, uh, maybe that's less effective, at boosting the economy. And so when you hit the zero lower bound, really that's a national thing. And that's sort of the idea that regular monetary policy can't really help anymore. And um, when you have unemployment uh, increases, they'll differ from state to state, but y- you see it all over the map. You see the whole map go red. Hmm. So when I said like, when there's a real recession, you'll know it. That's what I meant. Well, <laughs> you also, mean,
0: like, you it, will not find people who are, are, are doing great. Hmm. You, you you wrote about how like we think of the fifties as like the, the greatest time in the American economy ever, and yet there were like three recessions in the fifties. So uh, you know the the downturns are, are one thing, but like downturns that people remember or feel maybe is something else. Um, let me can I, uh, before we uh, let you go, I, I want to hit two more topics uh, really super quickly. Uh, oh, is this only half an hour? Well, hey, listen. You can let, let's around go if you like. Let's yeah. go 45. Let's go 45 minutes. Cuz I want to do chips and I want to do uh, crypto. All right, let's go. So, okay. Chips is this. Um, if you're an apple and you have um, a non-zero chance Not an orange. that <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> If you have a, non- a non-zero chance that that um, China's going to invade Taiwan in the next 18 months or at least blockade Um, I know that it's not easy to change the thing that, you know, you built your entire business around for the last 20, 25 years, but like, shouldn't we be seeing more tech companies fleeing or, or making contingency plans or something? And I know that again, if you couldn't signal that out in the open, but like, I I feel like one of the biggest not black swans, but like one of the biggest things that people are not paying enough attention to is that like the entire global tech industry could be brought to its knees like tomorrow if things go bad. If if you were if you were an Apple, how quickly would you be trying to have contingencies outside of Taiwan? Well, I think there's a good reason
2: that they don't put me, or at least there is a reason why they don't put me in charge of Apple, why Tim Cook has that job instead of me, and I'm just a humble blogger, which is that Tim Cook has to please his shareholders, and I'm just thinking about how to explain events to the public. Um, But, you know, uh, yeah, so, so when Apple decided to go all in on Chinese manufacturing, that was a very conscious decision. They knew the risks. They knew the potential downsides and they gambled on it they I you know were they greedy of course companies are always greedy uh, were they stupid I would say not necessarily they were just taking risks back in the 2000s or the even the even the early 2010s but certainly during the, the um, reign of Hu Jintao in China it looked like China was still on the path toward becoming more peaceful you know Hu Jintao, had a markedly more peaceful strategy toward Taiwan than his predecessors had. Um, And then it it looked as if China was opening up more, you know, around the 2008 Olympics, and you could make a macro bet on that. And the more you made that macro bet, the more risk you took on and the more reward you stood to reap from that uh, because of the China cost advantage that prevailed at that time. So Apple did that. And they, you know, some companies did not go all in on China and some companies did Apple did um, and now it is going you know it's it's gonna have to suffer the consequences um, there's really no you know it, back in the days when America was the hegemon and you could just and America got to decide whether or not there was going to be conflict or tensions or whatever you could just lobby America to back off but here if China blockades Taiwan no amount of Apple lobbying of anybody will make any difference and no one will listen to Tim Cook No, you know, Xi Jinping will not take Tim Cook's calls. And so and there's nothing anyone can do uh, to prevent that. And so um, so Apple's in a bind. Uh, if I were in charge of Apple, I would, of course, be scrambling to diversify, scrambling to make contingency plans like I would be in panic mode. And maybe behind the scenes, they are in panic mode and I just can't see it. Um, But, uh, you know, I, I think that they they made their bed and may now have to lie in it.
1: How does that, sorry, I'm just going to jump in. Like how does that advantage or disadvantage any of the other players in the space besides Apple?
2: Uh, I don't actually know because it mm-hmm. depends on who else manufactures stuff more outside of China. And mm. um, so if there's, there's, you know, um, I guess Apple's rivals in the smartphone space would be Samsung yep. and, uh, and Google, I suppose. Yep. Um, and so those, if those, I think those folks are, are, more, are a little more diversified mm-hmm. Um. There's other places you can manufacture these things. There's like Malaysia, there's Vietnam, there's you know places. Um, you can even do some stuff in the U.S. Uh, we we have that capability. Mm-hmm. But um, depending on how much they've diversified, they could come out. You know, everyone's going to take a big hit if China attacks Taiwan. Like everyone, and not just because of the sudden closure of manufacturing uh, supply chains, but also just because of macro variables. You know, uh, yeah. interest rates will go through the roof. It's it's this is I mean this World War Three. Like that's, that's the big one. That's the thing we've all been like
1: tweet to uh, the story uh, from wired uh, an excerpt from the 2034 novel, a novel of the next world war. And it's, it's quite good. If you ever get a chance to read it, who wrote that? Um, it's actually a former, I think commander in the Navy. Is that Stavridis? Elliot Ackerman and Admiral James Stavridis. Stavridis. What happened?
0: in your company. Visit collide.com slash ride to watch a demo and see how it all works. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash ride collide.com slash ride. Whenever I need to do financial research for this show, for instance, during tech earnings season, when I have to analyze how various companies' stocks have been performing...
1: Pretend like it's going to keep on going.
0: You know, someone says,
2: actually, we're going to make peace with Taiwan, blah, blah, blah. And then we have peace in our time as the saying goes. And the, the thing is, um, if that doesn't happen, then it's a question of when, not if. Yeah. And, and, and now we are in that sort of dark, foreboding preamble time when we can see this coming down the pipeline. We, we know that the crisis of the 21st century is upon us.
0: The, the great power contest where we're going to decide the global order for the rest of the century. Because this would be multiples different than Russia invading Ukraine.
2: I wouldn't say multiples. I mean, it would be, well, Well, the, the key is that uh, it would involve direct combat between China and America. So Russia invading Ukraine, they didn't have to attack America. China invading Taiwan will have to attack America. And the reason is this. If they do a, um, well, uh, sorry, China invading Taiwan, would necessitate that they attack America because if they don't attack America preparatory to an invasion America would have the opportunity to spoil their invasion by shooting down their landing ships from our bases in the area and so in order to prevent that risk you know to, and that risk that America would you know just like intercede and shoot them down and stop their invasion which is pretty high given that <laughs> Biden explicitly said <laughs> that we would come to Taiwan's defense before sort of half-walking it back via a surrogate. Um, this, that risk is very high, because suppose that China decides, we're not going to poke America, we're just going to pull a Russia, we're just going to invade Taiwan without attacking the American bases in the area first, uh, and then invades Taiwan, and then America is like, yeah, actually, you know what, no, you can't do that, and we sink their ships, because they didn't take out our bases first, and we were able to sink their ships. And at that point, whoever did that is is going to be hung from a gas station in China? That's uh, that's how Mussolini died. No, <laughs> so, um, they're they're, they're <laughs> out <laughs> Yeah, I mean, they're going to be thrown into a gulag or whatever. Um, and then and that'll be the last we see of, of Xi Jinping or whoever made that blunder. So that risk is way too high. And um, so what China will do is when it attacks Taiwan, it will attack U.S. bases in the region, similarly to the way Japan you know attacked Pearl Harbor. Um, because, you know, in order to sort of keep our fleet away, right? The idea is if they can take out our battleships, then our fleet won't interfere as they take over Southeast Asia. And that was the idea. And so, um, uh, it, but they didn't get the aircraft carriers, and so we, uh, we used those instead. But then, um, but, you know, China would be a little smarter than, than that, and maybe more effective. But the point is that we have a lot of land bases in the area, and China will attack these and destroy these. Um, preparatory to uh, actual an actual all out invasion of Taiwan, um, and that and if that happens, we are at World War III. That is that is it.
0: Okay, uh, <laughs> pull, pulling back a bit, um, I, and I'm gonna I'm gonna quote you because I want to come back to the to the chips thing and the way that I've been dealing with it on the show has been a lot about like um, again uh, strategic in terms of Silicon Valley. Uh, and their business models and also even the economy. Like uh, can we bring chip manufacturing back on shore so that you don't have to worry about a blockade of Taiwan, et cetera, et cetera. I'm going to quote from uh, something you wrote because this really crystallized it to me. It's the reason that governments care about this is not just jobs. is not just about like, Oh God, if China invades Taiwan, you won't have iPhones for however many years or whatever. Um, You say that like if computer chips have to be shipped from Taiwan and South Korea, they'd be vulnerable to Chinese blockade. And the reason that that's important is that precision weapons, the damage an explosive does drops off very quickly as the explosion becomes more distant. This is a basic fact of geometry. Generally speaking, the radiative heat drops off as the inverse square of the distance while the strength of the shockwave drops off as the inverse cube. So making a weapon 10 times more precise means that you make it somewhere between 100 and 1,000 times as destructive. So what we're saying is the reason that all countries, uh, uh, regions, Europe, uh, Japan, South Korea, the United States, it's not just that we, 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 we can't do without our phones and our cars and all these things. It's that in the modern era you can't wage war effectively without these ships because as we're seeing in Ukraine precision munitions have to have to have these chips and if you don't have them you're basically fighting in the 20th century that is accurate yes I think you just pretty much summed it up oh well then okay
1: <laughs> Chris <laughs> yeah, you wanted to ask about crypto.
0: Yeah. um, Last thing, uh, Noah, the uh, you said uh, you had a piece recently that said something that I've heard from other people, which is that you think that there is probably there's got to be one more bubble coming. I think you said it was specifically for Bitcoin, Um, but you've written a lot of pieces about like, you know, we debate the use case for crypto and things like that. when you're thinking of crypto right now um give give me the argument that you made for why you think we're due for another bubble it has to do with um in in your argument the the supreme court of all things
2: uh yeah so so i'm not you know going to i i i wouldn't bet money on my prediction i was just you know speculating for fun as i made clear in the post. But um, if we if we look at Bitcoin's history, Bitcoin is, has had a series of bubbles, four big ones, and um, each bubble has generated a lo- significantly lower peak-to-peak or trough-to-peak return than the previous uh, bubble. And when I say a bubble, I'm not judging, I'm not saying like Bitcoin is a bubble, it's useless, it's valueless, blah, blah, blah. I'm not saying that, not saying that. I'm saying simply a rise and crash, all right? Just a rise and crash, in the dollar price of Bitcoin. We've seen that four times. No one disputes that, that is just the graph. And so each time, the return that you'd get from, uh, you know, from, from holding on during that time has gone down. And so I expect that to continue to happen, and there's a good reason for that return attenuation to continue to happen, which is adoption saturation. When you have a bunch of people who might hold Bitcoin but don't, and they buy into the system and they pay for Bitcoin, you increase demand, and you therefore increase price. And so that as more and more people have become aware of Bitcoin and as more and more people have had reason to adopt Bitcoin, you've seen more and more people have, I have Bitcoin, you know, and, and, and who doesn't these days, who doesn't have a little Bitcoin? And so the more of that that you have, the, more, the less opportunities for increased onboarding of new people that you have. And so I think that's why we've seen this return attenuation. And this, isn't, this shouldn't be that controversial. A thing to say
0: it's you know um this is this is pretty classic with every financial asset going going from one to a thousand is one thing going from a thousand to ten thousand is one thing but going from twenty thousand to fifty thousand is yeah the idea
2: that we'd have one more bubble and me predicting its size from just looking at the pattern of the previous bubble that's goofy right i was just i was just having fun um don't, don't take that to the bank. Don't bet on that. Um, but then the idea that Bitcoin's return attenuate, returns are attenuating as adoption saturates, that I think is a serious piece of
1: analysis. Now, is that because we're still waiting for some kind of real widespread use case or additional use cases or for something else? Or is it sort of like like gold enough where it's kind of like, you know, all right, we kind of understand the mechanics of this. And so therefore now that it's like better understood the speculative kind of, you know, where returns would no longer be attenuating, but would actually
0: be increasing um, is no longer possible because that's sort of like.
2: Basically um, I don't know what eventual use cases will be, but then I think that, you know, uh, what everyone sort of observed is that we see uh, a big flurry of interest every time someone comes up with a new thing that they like to do with crypto icos mm-hmm. um you know uh d things like that yeah. right nfts and so each time and, and and those you know sort of turn out to be disappointing icos are mostly scams mm-hmm. um appetite for collectible nfts was not zero but was less than people hoped mm-hmm. um and all, like every, it's, to a rounding error, every defi was a Ponzi, mm-hmm. and so that those are all disappointing, right? And so, um, I think that that uh, you but know, it, next time we come up with our use case with a mm-hmm. with a use case for crypto, mm-hmm. next time we come up with a, the next thing that we'll see it, we'll see another pump mm-hmm. in crypto. But the but how big that pump will be, I don't know, mm-hmm. and whether that use case is real or is just another bunch of scams, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, my guess is that it's going to be a bunch of scams just because. You know, crypto is unregulated finance and fine unregulated finance always, always, always lends itself to scams Mm -hmm. no matter where you go. And no matter what era, uh, that is just what unregulated finance is about. So, yeah, I mean, is um, that
1: that like the job to be done of unregulated finance? Like it is actually like, yeah, okay,
2: just scams. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: And so. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, so so regulated finance will fund your railroads and your, you know, uh, silicon and all this shit. But then unregulated finance will scam people out of their money. And we know that sort of from history. It's one of the most painful repeated lessons of history. And um, uh, yeah, anyway.
1: Um, well, but so so like if, if uh, you know, I called you an economist before. I don't know if you're a financial historian also, but. Like, are there historical analogs where all money or anything that aspired to be money, whether it was like clamshells or gold doubloons, are those pants? I know those are bloomers or like other things that were used for pecuniary, uh, I don't know, number tallying have always been used for sort of scams until there's sort of a system of accounting that develops alongside the thing itself.
2: I'm not enough of a monetary historian to be able to tell you the answer to that. I would ask um, someone like uh, Brad DeLong would know that, uh-huh. and I just don't. I just can't say that categorically. I just know that uh, booms and unregulated finance always end in big crashes and a lot of scams, yep. um, and often. But see, here's the thing: often these booms finance real things. So in the mm-hmm. in the um, uh, in the in the housing boom, we did finance the creation of the exurbs, right? In the um, In the pre-depression boom, we financed the creation of a ton of like, um, you know, a ton of industries, railroads, or not railroads. uh, Sorry, the auto industry, um, Mm -hmm. things like that. And railroads were before eighteen seventy-three, the Panic of eighteen seventy-three. So we left behind, and even the dot-com crash, we financed all this, uh, all the infrastructure of the internet, all all the dark fiber, yeah, 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 exactly. And so then, uh, yeah. So basically, uh, the question is, what might what useful things might crypto leave behind and i think so far it has not left anything yet we have not yet seen what the dark fiber equivalent we've not yet seen that stuff um but we may next time and so if i if you made me guess i would say that um people are going to start figuring out how to use crypto networks to get money to lend in real estate and we would see a real estate boom and bust that will hurt the economy draw a bunch of regulation and put a true end to the crypto rainbow, mm. uh, after a, a big real estate um, investment binge, because real estate investment going bust is always like that's end stage finance. That's the last thing that, that happens. And it's the most destructive thing. Is it because it's, and the that slowest? Is a, that's a pattern I do know. Pardon?
1: Is that because it's uh, the slowest? Mm-hmm. No,
2: mm. it's got the most leveraged.
1: Uh, 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 okay. And I mean, it's, like, so, so, but, but
2: this is just Hyman Minsky. This is just, uh, Uh you borrow and you borrow and you borrow, and then eventually you borrow and cover your interest and then you blow Uh up. And then the thing is that real estate is just more heavily leveraged. Like you didn't have to borrow that much to build all that fiber. Mm. You didn't have to borrow that much to build like Amazon or whatever. Mm. Um, you had to borrow a lot to, to basically buy houses. Even if you don't build new houses, you have to borrow a lot to buy old houses. And so real estate just involves so much leverage. That's why we, we have it. That's why venture capitalists don't lend to, don't, don't lend to real estate. That's why banks do that you know because they have the deep pockets et cetera. Mm-hmm. and when banks when banks go bust the econ- the real economy goes bust and we have a big real recession like in 2008 to 9. um and i think we had a mini version of that before in 1990 when you know the savings and loan crisis right was sort of a, a preview of 2008. um we okay. had too much unregulated housing finance if i had to guess what they will use crypto for next I would say housing finances, they've used crypto to pretend to be investing in tech companies, which was ICOs, right? Mm, yeah. They've used crypto to pretend to be investing in various financial schemes, which was defy. Um, I don't see them pretending to invest in bio or whatever. It's like, no, yeah. what they're going to pretend to, what they're going to pretend to invest in is real estate or, or actually, I mean, you know, we could see a boom in actual investment. And so I think that people are going to, if I had, I guess the next crypto use case, I would say, and, and you can see Packy McCormick and some other crypto boosters talking right, about this, right, they right. say things like put your house on the blockchain. Well, you're not going to put a house on the blockchain. That doesn't make any sense. It means Nothing. Mm-hmm. But what you might do is use blockchains to gather a lot of money to yeah. sidestep regulation and lend money to people to buy houses that you couldn't lend money to through traditional yeah, banking I was,
1: I was just going to say, like, if you exhaust the supply of regulated sort of you know, money uh, to, let's say, leverage the value of your home, and, and that's exhausted, right? But you still want more stuff. Then you would go to the unregulated places that are, are willing to offer you kind of, you know, ridiculous, uh, you know, value for the value of your house. But then of course you get screwed because the regulations aren't there to protect you. And that's how this type of grift occurs.
2: Yes. And then, and then, uh, and when that happens, the real economy gets hurt yeah. because when you have so much leverage and bubbles, mm. so, so bubbles with that leverage, are not that bad. Actually, if, you know, stock price goes up, stock price goes down, you know, like who cares, but then, um. But then, when you have debt, then you have these chains of leverage where people, you know, have to sell because they can't—they need to pay off their debts—and then those people have to sell, and blah blah blah. And then you have this giant overhang of debt; everybody owes each other money, and so you have to unwind this for years, and it's just very painful. And I think, you know, I don't think it's going to be two thousand eight, two thousand nine level,
0: mm-hmm.
2: but um, saving—I can see a savings and loan level crisis happening with this. Mm-hmm. And so maybe this will happen. Maybe this will never happen. I hope it never happens. But. Given the anti-regulatory, uh, mm-hmm. you know, sort of climate that the of the new Supreme Court, given the fact that Republicans are likely to take back power and start launching a major attack on regulation in general, given all this anti-regulatory action, I think we could see crypto slip in and start doing and do a whole bunch of housing finance, uh, which will, of course, cause Bitcoin and Ether and all, a lot of other coins to pump hugely. Mm-hmm. Um, now, now maybe it won't pump as. I don't think it'll pump as much return-wise, percentage-wise, as it did last time. But, you know, we could see massively increased demand because people would want these coins because people were using them to invest in housing. And so I think, you know, in this scenario, we could see another bubble and crash. And this one would hurt the real economy. And afterwards, everyone would come in and say, how how did we let this happen? And and then you'd have, you know, people writing angry op-eds about how we must never let this happen again. And then a year later, you'd get some, like, kludgy sort of you know, Dodd-Frank style, uh, you know, Sarbanes-Oxley style sort of like bill, you know, making sure that this thing that would, you know, will never happen again. And then, and then the crypto rainbow is done, I think, because then you, then unregulated finance era is done and crypto will be regulated as normal finance.
0: No, Noah, Noah, very last thing. And then um, you're free to go back to the rabbits. Uh, All right. Uh, <laughs> They're looking you, bored. You, you, you said you kept using the word pretend, pretend they're going to pretend to do this. Right. Uh, that's an interesting word to use. So what do you mean by that? It, 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 I, I'm well, not... they, they pretended ICOs yeah. were pretend because none of these were real companies.
2: Name me a name me a real good company that like ICO. I mean, you you got to like a couple things in the crypto space itself that just like completely operate within the crypto space. And, and you know, but like ICOs, almost all ICOs are scams. Right? Name a uh, name a DeFi project, a Web3 project that's actually worked out so far. Like Axie Infinity blew up. Helium's going to blow up. Like all these things. Nothing. Nothing is really. There's. There hasn't been a real thing that worked yet in this space. Um, so they might not pretend to invest next time. I think. In fact, I think houses are real things. Right. So if you invest in houses and somebody builds new houses, you didn't pretend. You did. You invested for real. Right. Mm-hmm. That's real. Yep. Um But then but ICOs were kind of pretend and DeFi was kind of pretend.
0: So it was pretend in the past. Yeah. Well, so the the the, the worry is, is that uh, the next bubble will be not so pretend. And then. Uh, yes, others. exactly. <laughs> um, so I, I really hope we, we don't, don't allow that, <laughs> but I, we
2: might. We do a lot of silly things these days.
0: ZocDoc.com slash techmeme and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash techmeme. ZocDoc.com slash techmeme. With everybody fighting for attention, how can your business stand out and connect with customers? Easy. Easy. customer support. Plus, everything's backed by their 30-day money-back guarantee. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Okay, Noah, we're going to let you go if you want. Chris and I are going to still talk about something else tech related. Um, <laughs> right. but, uh, before, before we, uh, let you go, um, your sub stack is no opinion. Is there anything else you want to plug? Thank you for coming on, et cetera, et cetera. Just uh, tell us anything you want to tell us and, and thank you so much.
2: Oh no. Yeah. Thank you guys. It's been really fun. Yeah. Everybody just read my blog. It's a, uh, it's called no opinion without an O in the middle, which some people put, um, it's just no opinion. And, um, it's, uh, you know, it's fun. uh, I'm having fun blogging. All right. See you guys
0: later. Thanks so much. Yes. Thank you, Noah. Thanks, Noah. Take care. Uh, Chris. Yes. You know what I I want to talk about? uh, Because it's one of those topics that um, I haven't gotten to talk about on the show, uh, but you and I have talked about offline. It's the um, Google doing the get the message. Yes. Uh, ad campaign to pressure Apple to join their RCS yep. SMS MM whatever RCS is. Rich, um,
1: I don't even know. Yeah, who cares? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um,
1: no, I just went to I, Google. I, I'm sorry, I went to google.com or actually the, the new tab um, page, and there's literally a message. I, w- I will tweet it, and you guys can take a look at it. So they're 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 literally putting the homepage of Google uh, behind this campaign.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So. It smacks a little bit of desperation and you know, it, um, it really
1: it worked out for Google+ so I don't see why they wouldn't do it again
0: <laughs> well, so uh, I w- what we were talking about offline you and I was I, I shared uh, Benedict Evans had a tweet talking about how okay if you're if you're Google and uh, obviously you you want mm-hmm. uh, well if you're Google and you and you want to have, some sort of a, a a foothold in the messaging space here's your problem um in in north america or at least the united states iphone and and i kind of wins right everywhere else in the developed world uh whatsapp has won yeah um so even messenger like, messenger
1: is actually pretty big that's too. to you.
0: So, there's this, is, you know, insert joke about uh, Google's uh, inability to get messaging <laughs> together. and uh-huh. But, like, uh, this is kind of a lost cause, right? Like, there's no way that there's any sort of wedge that, that RCS can get in. Because why is, why, I, I know that what Google's doing here is they're speaking to the regulators. Hey, look, yep. we have this open standard or whatever. Hey, let's have Apple get on board with this, too. But like this isn't, I mean, this isn't going to yeah, work.
1: That's what I was going to say, right? Like, I mean, we have to sort of realize that we're moving into a, an era where more technological innovation is, and I, I, I feign to use the word innovation, but is going to occur at the kind of you know other end of a regulator's stick than kind of independent developers kind of, you know, working in their little decentralized hovels and, uh, you know, coming up with a standard themselves that then kind of like takes off and takes over the world. And, you know, I was there for, for a lot of those things happening. Mm. That's how OAuth came to be. You know, it was a bunch of developers kind of coming up with their own thing, largely for independent, you know, web platforms. Um, And we convinced the major platforms to adopt them because they realized, well, maybe they realized that this was like in, in the nature of their business that, competing on those standards wasn't actually necessary for them. So this to me is very much the old standard Google playbook where RCS is a method by which Google has the ability to index your text messages. And cool. Facebook has their own way of indexing your WhatsApp messenger, Instagram, Facebook messages, messages. Um, and Apple, of course, you know, who, who knows exactly what they're doing? But um, I've been saying for a long time that iMessage and the ad, the address book that's built into uh, macOS and iOS is the Apple social network. And you start to see that with iOS 16 and, and macOS Ventura um, as they're creating features in Safari, um, notably one called For You, which aggregates all the links out of iMessage into a feed of updates. So, like, I, I think that Google is starting to realize, like, oh, shit, like. Apple is moving into sort of like the social space and the sharing space, and they also may come out with their own search engine, which then removes the need for Google in the OS. You know, this is going to be multi-year, multi-decade kind of thing. Um, and when it comes to messaging, you know, having interoperability that is imposed by regulatory bodies, specifically from the EU, um, that is their way to prevent that possibility from occurring. I mean, this is, this is you know, speaking to Google+, Plus, oh. the reason why Google Buzz and, and why I was hired at Google was because Google believed that if they just indexed all the social feeds that were being created across the web, that that would just be another form of content that could be advertised against. And so they were very excited about a lot of the standards work that I was doing back then because it meant that there would be a common format for expressing all the social data. Now, of course, Facebook you know, wasn't really on board with that because they wanted to have their own proprietary data that they could advertise against. Um, and other platforms had a similar kind of interest in their own content. But that is the original strategy behind Google buzz. And of course that didn't work. And so uh, we're sort of, at least I'm seeing echoes of a similar uh, approach in this current uh, initiative.
0: Is it interesting to you and you could completely disagree with this, but sure. uh, so, like you, you said, you know, iMessage is sort of like the social network that everyone is sleeping on. Yeah. Um, and also I would argue that uh, meta is sleeping on the fact that WhatsApp is what it is and what they want to turn it into is something closer to god knows fucking TikTok, or but they, they want to turn it into a shopping like a business communication thing but you know again the one of the most powerful things in the world is owning people's communications to the people that they care about and yeah. it's interesting to me that again apple seems to and maybe f- <laughs> to the benefit of society sleeping on the power of what iMessage actually is um, facebook or meta seems to be willing to uh potentially <laughs> ruin what is great about uh, uh, uh whatsapp or whatever like um it's it's so it's so simple to just allow people to talk to each other um I, 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 maybe that's hard to monetize but i, I don't know like i, it,
1: um, I it's, it's. I think it's a little harder uh, for a number of reasons. Um, you know, one obviously there's, there's a competitive aspect, and so, you know, I think Apple is being pretty savvy because if regulators understood that iMessage is the equivalent of Internet Explorer but for messages, uh, then they would see that bundling their own messaging system with the operating system, both iOS and macOS, is the equivalent of locking in, you know, their user base into that type of product now that said there is a lot of choice i mean frankly i you know use probably 10 or 12 or 15 different messengers or messaging apps on a daily basis so it's not like you're locked out from being able to use alternative products and especially when you want to talk about privacy and security interoperability becomes very tricky to enforce right so the yeah kind of predecessor for this would have been the the telcos and it is true that anybody can SMS anybody else's phone number. Now, of course, there are uh, telco level blocks on you know spam and abuse that can be um, put in. This is why, for example, there's the Do Not Call registry, and there's also I think a, a Do Not Like Spam Text registry uh, that had to be put in place because of the openness and the interoperability of those systems. I mean, those those the, like the phone line systems are, are super basic uh, in comparison to today's messengers, which are often encrypted end to end, not always, but some of the time, um, where they have the ability to send rich messages, uh, also sometimes encrypted, you know, where you have to deal with uh, geographic restrictions, where messages maybe are kept in one country or another. Um, so it's a lot more, I think, complex than just saying, well, let's just like make this a decentralized free-for-all that anybody can message anybody else. Um, on the other hand, you know, it's interesting to see that there is some movement I see, I've see, in, in, i seen, and I do know when I like Go down this path too far but some movement in the web three um sort of deep it's not really DeFi space but uh the- mm-hmm. anyways where there's web three messengers you know that are using de- your
0: decentralized space yes is what yeah
1: yes but well but it's crypto right because you're using your right. ens right. your you know right um your ethereum name service address as a type of um address that you could send to so for example there's uh there's an app called farcaster which recently i think raised some money um they might be in private beta and they have this interesting format where you can like mention someone by using like a username and then dot service so I might be Christmasina dot twitter on uh farcaster or Christmas or chris dot Instagram if you want to mention my Instagram handle on farcaster and so although that's not messaging oh. per se they're starting to develop their own internal way of referring to accounts that might be a remote account um, on on the current you know, context or platform. uh, Mastodon has done this for a long time with email-style identifiers, and that's what we used a long time ago.
0: Mm -hmm. I was going to say, like, I mean, that's where we get things like, you know, the at-reply, at-symbol, and and, you know, God forbid, the hashtag and things like that, like baking into the overall internet, like sort of that direct stuff that doesn't go through, um, you know, SMTP and like, you know, traditional sort of messaging and email stuff, I guess, but
1: yeah. I th- like, um, it's, it's, it's really, really hard for me to think about where this goes uh, because <clears throat> like I can imagine a world in, in which there is interop. And in fact, there is interop between iMessage and, you know, sending messages to other platforms. But there is this interesting, you know, the Wall Street Journal had that story about, um, you know, teens bullying each other or something because someone was a, gr- a green bubble versus like a blue hole because, you know, blue represented the iPhone, which meant that, you know, you are a more affluent, you know, person or young person or something. And, like, I don't know that Interop, you know, solves or addresses that problem. That's a that's a design problem. That's not a, you know, a security or, um, you know, kind of represents the integrity of the service problem. It's, not, it's also not about um, the ability to move media content and messages between different platforms. Um, and I don't know how you necessarily deal with that. Um, so for example, um, you know, some platforms will have limitations on the size of the, you know, videos or files that you can share or send. Um, you know, if you, for example, are an independent... I don't know self-hosted messaging service do you want to be storing you know gigabytes and, or terabytes of you know user videos do you want to deal with you know what happens when people use your platform for child pornography and things like that like so there are some questions about the modern use of these messaging platforms that bears some scrutiny and some questions as to how we want these things to work and then what actually allows for competition to occur and whether or not you know i can take all of my messages out of let's say whatsapp and then transfer them into imessage or transfer them into some random shady Android app, you know, that's going to like ultimately leak out to the internet. And then all the people that I've been messaging now, of course, their privacy has been violated by my choice. So I, I don't know, like that's where it gets, I think a little more tricky than, uh, you know, we we've seen in the past.
0: I, um, I, I met with, a, an LP, um, from Singapore this afternoon and, you know, I'm doing all the things over email, like, well, here's my cell number. If you need to get in touch with me, X, Y, and, and, I forget this because, you know, there's things are solved in certain ways. And, and, and he mm. was just like, just, just what's me Yeah. And I was like, Oh, right. I, and I had to I had to download WhatsApp to my phone <laughs> to make sure that I could do that. But yeah. Um, well, you know, it, like, it, it,
1: here's another example, right? Like, you know, what happens, uh, you know, there's, there's of course another generation coming up on discord you know or even snap yeah you know exactly, and so exactly. if kids on snap want to you know message kids on discord is that something that should be mandated by the european you know government uh you know what does that even mean and what are the privacy protections that happen on both ends of those platforms you know for example whatsapp has just added a number of features to support privacy um you know so for example they're trying to interrupt the ability for people to take a screenshot you know of the content now that i would think would be a, an operating system level um you know concern but nonetheless you could notify of course the other person if a screenshot has taken has taken place but now if the the platform that you're interoperating operating with doesn't actually support that feature that is very vital to you understanding like the privacy exposure that you you know uh that you're experiencing what does that mean you know and who's at fault and and how do you sort of you know police that so i think this is why you know when it comes to a common set of messaging standards. You know, I don't I don't know the full spec of what RCS actually supports and whether it's identical with what iMessage does or if it has its own set of features or if it uses different names for things or what have you. But these are, I think, the layers of consideration that you need to think about as opposed to just saying, well, everyone should be able to message everybody and it should just be, you know, uh, open season, just like the phone networks.
0: Right. Because we have spam because email was designed in a Uh, certain way. Another
1: another good example, right? Like if Google, uh, you know, and, and Google has with Gmail added their Gmail extensions that allow you to have interactive messages and I don't know that it's an open standard uh, that anybody can use, maybe it is, but there's very few other email providers that have adopted this format, um, then that begs the question of, well, of course, that's great for Gmail because it's kind of lock-in. Now Gmail or you know Google and Gmail, of course, want you to use Gmail to get those uh, additional interactive elements that is not part of the SMTP mail email standard, right? Well, so like, it just sort of like comes down to who has the lead and why they have the lead and how they're gonna protect their turf.
0: I, I I still like pop. Let's forget SMTV.
1: Let's go back to pop. Um, <laughs> let's use pie.
0: Uh, do you have something from the recent two weeks that is on your mind? Yeah. Well, you know, you so didn't...
1: I guess uh, there's. Um, well, I think we have three more topics. Um, yeah. You know, so one actually. Well, we could do four, but I think we'll do three. Um, one is 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 actually related, sort of, to this. Is that? Um, let's see. What is his name? It's actually on the top of tech meme right now. Um, uh, Felix Krauss. Uh, I will share a link to this um, into this channel.
0: Yeah, I talked about this today. Yeah.
1: yeah, you know, like so. So I've I've watched Felix for for a while. Um, he, I believe, uh, built the Fastlane tools, um, and he discovered by essentially kind of you know looking at the traffic that was going on between Instagram's uh, mobile apps and Facebook's mobile app and um, and Instagram that <laughs> these platforms are tracking everything that you're doing if you use their in-app browsers. Now, I, I suppose I kind of expected this, so it wasn't that surprising to me, but it's surprising once you, I don't know, I guess sort of realized how, how few other people kind of also anticipated this, or just maybe like the, the brazenness of it. So essentially well, what's happening...
0: Uh, I was going to say, hmm. uh, Apple didn't anticipate uh,
1: this? Well, it's a little bit different though, because... so it may be the system Safari, you know, WebKit browser, right? So I think Apple's approach has been to say, well, we will create a secure rendering engine for web content and other uh, browser makers have to use our rendering engine. And, you know, Apple does this for security. It does it for, um, you know, battery and performance reasons. And so that I think might've been how they were um, maybe approaching it. And so it was sort of surprising perhaps that what was going on here is that as that window is loading, um, you know, I- I Instagram essentially injects some JavaScript or maybe an iframe or something that is loading more or less the the Facebook advertising you know complex, and that is something that you know whether Apple was looking for that or not. I mean, it may not actually be non-compliant, and in fact, you know, if you agree to the terms of service of these platforms, that may be okay. Now. I think a really big question is whether or not this flies in the face of and it probably does the intention of the app tracking transparency effort that Apple you know made to make these things more private and this just goes to show like how powerful the advertising sort of industrial complex is I mean it's going to figure out how to track you regardless and if you're using a browser that's built into these apps, then those apps have control over that experience so you know, obviously, like one way to get around this is simply to not browse in the native um, uh, uh, browsers that are built into there's, Facebook. There's, there's and apparently, but.
0: I, I I didn't say this, but there's apparently you can go into settings and force these apps mm. to open outside of the app. Like it, it exists, it's hidden. Interesting. Um, yeah, but you can you can do that. Well, uh, but okay, you said you're not sure that this is against what att is doing it's certainly against the spirit of what they wanted to do uh
1: i mean look the the spirit of what they want to do i think is still up in our or like an open question you know i think apple clearly has a desire and an interest to to become more of an advertising uh company how they become an advertising company has yet to be seen and it's sort of like the way in which they under promote iMessage as their social network Right. They're very savvy about their communications. They're very savvy to put privacy out there in front. Now, you may be able to disable these trackers inside of these apps that are provided by Facebook, but you know if you've ever gone to system settings and you look at all the ways in which you're sharing data with Apple, I mean, a lot of those things are on by default. So I I, I can't say that I understand exactly the spirit of Apple, except that I understand that there are controls, just like Facebook says there are controls, and there are controls, that very, very few people are actually going to make use of.
0: I uh, Not to derail you, but this is something, again, that I haven't done a story on yet because there's been several stories about it and I haven't found the right hook into it to talk Mm -hmm. about on the show. But Mm -hmm. um, there's been a lot of people talking about how uh, oh, you know the greatest trick Apple ever pulled was convincing people this was all privacy. As essentially they kneecap their rivals and they lay the groundwork for their own advertising play. It, so far, there are there are people to the extent that people are saying that some of the if tech is in a recession, it is due mm-hmm. to the fact that small businesses you know uh are, 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 there was some um data point that like uh half of the ability to target is gone so like if you're a small business and you've lost half of your ability to get yep. uh, uh, to get a return on your advertising dollar
2: yeah
0: like that could seriously affect your bottom line um, what are your thoughts on that in terms of like apple <laughs> Apple certainly by doing it as a privacy play made it sound palatable to people. Do you buy this idea that this was actually kind of like the greatest jujitsu sort of shiv in the gut? Uh,
1: you know, I like, I, I, I do and I don't. Uh, and I think it's, it's still so much more like subtle and nuanced than, you know, I think we really understand because no one's going to be completely honest and transport transparent and forthcoming about what their ultimate ambitions and motivations are, you know, I think that Apple's been such a master storyteller for so long and shaping the narrative of what they want to talk about that it makes it very hard for us to understand, like to what degree Apple wants to take, you know, that space that Facebook currently occupies and to what degree there's sort of a personal animus between Tim Cook and Mark Zuckerberg, um, just in terms of their personal values or their goals or, you know, whatever it is, or just like their ambitions in terms of, you know, how they want to be in the world. Um, I did, I did share. Zuck
0: says they're on a, they're in a philosophical battle or something like that. Yeah, exactly.
1: You know, like I, I, it's sort of, um, if I think back to like 300, I think it was, was it like the, the Romans and the Egyptians or something sort of like in this, like, you know, huge battle it's
0: the, it's the Persians and the uh, Greeks, the Pers- but yes. okay.
1: <laughs> this is why you're the historian and I just yes. watch movies. Don't,
0: don't come at me with history, my friend,
1: <laughs> yeah, this, this is why I asked you first, uh, anyways. Yes. So that exactly, like, it feels like that's the level, it's almost like a civilizational style battle, you know, of, of, of how these systems should work. Um, and. It will be interesting to see you know as apple shifts more into the advertising space how they self uh, you know privilege themselves um, how that comes out kind of in the wash you know for example if you go into like so i recently upgraded my my apple watch um thank you prime day and when now i go into my settings in ios now there's a, a, a promo of course to get three months free of apple fitness plus now oh, nobody else oh can do an ad like that inside of the, the iOS settings, right? Peloton can't do that. Um, you know, berries can't do that. Only Apple has access to that. It's very similar for Apple TV plus or any of the other services that Apple wants to sell me. And so you have that juxtaposition where Apple clearly is privileging its own services and maybe wants to make the argument that that is part of the product, the, the hardware product that you just bought. But in terms of anybody else being on the platform, I think it makes it very, very hard for others to compete. So you asked this question about uh, the ability for people to target ads on Facebook and get a return on their investment. I do think that there's been some hampering of that. I don't know what the full extent of that is. You know, Google is also moving away from cookies, which to me presumes that they have figured out sort of a machine learning model that allows them to just sort of detect who the user is based on a number of other fingerprinting techniques and technologies that you know, very few other companies are going to have access to. I mean, if you know, the, the, the crazy thing about some of these things is that When we try to solve for one problem you know which seems like this thing that needs to be addressed by creating something that is more uh technologically sophisticated or i don't know complex you actually undermine a lot of the you kind of like take the oxygen out of the the space that would allow for new entrance into the market so for example you know like i i I'm proud of the hashtag because it allows for anybody to actually build upon that because it's such a simple idea that no one can really take away from the marketplace. But if Google takes away cookies and says that you know the Chrome browser is now going to prevent any cookies from being stored on your system, but we're still going to allow you to sign into the browser and get personalized services, that means that Google then essentially is the only one that can use cookies because it knows who you are because it's sort of set at a higher level. That is a huge competitive advantage. So in terms of authentication, you don't need cookies anymore if you're authenticating the user at the operating system level or at the browser level. So suddenly now you have to go through those gatekeepers to be able to measure what people are actually doing on these systems and platforms. And so that puts them into an even greater leverage position of power. So you got to imagine like, like Facebook doing this feels a little bit like Uber you know, uh, kind of creating a, a black geocache like kind of around the Apple campus so that the Apple experience when they were testing the Uber app, you know, and I don't know mm, anything personally mm. about this, even though I worked at Uber, I've, I just read about it in like Isaac's book, um, you know, it was designed to kind of circumvent the kind of platform hegemonic kind of approach to this problem because that's all they could do in the, in the short term. Right. So I, I guess like, that's kind of how I think about this.
0: Um, I want you to get to the next topic, but quick <laughs> observation that if, yeah. if, the government passed the law that, you know, uh, you can't, uh, be preferential to your own products and things mm-hmm. like that. So then, so then as opposed to when you set up your watch and you get, uh, notifications for Apple music, you would have five ads because right. they'd have to also put Spotify on there. They'd have to put SoundCloud That's what they did with there. browsers.
1: That's, you yep, know, when you yep, installed yep. Microsoft windows, yep. you got a choice yep. of Firefox, Chrome or internet explorer. Yep. So when it comes to that level of control over an operating system, you know, I think this is what Tim Sweeney is up in arms about, you know, in terms of not being able to have multiple app stores means that you have to go through the, you know, gatekeeper in chief you know, which is Apple. And so that really, you know, constricts and restricts the economic uh competition that can occur and the economic innovation that could occur by, let's say, lowering the cost of, you know, products, goods, or in-app purchases or, or, you know, anything like that. Or the fact that like Apple arcade is built into the app store means that nobody like, and it's like you pay whatever, four, four or $5 a month and you get access to like this whole library of games. No one else has that level of access or integration into the app store. So those things I think are going to start to become pretty obvious that they are really, really big, um, you know, moats. Now, yeah, I mean, Apple's, I love Apple. I love Apple products. So I'm saying this from the perspective of thinking about the marketplace and the health of the marketplace and of that broader ecosystem and whether or not the difficulty of getting started in the future is going to be so much greater because just competing on the, you know, on the turf that, that it's like Apple both sets the kind of rules of the NFL and also has two, two teams, you know, playing uh, against everyone else. Like, of course, you're going to have a huge advantage because they can rewrite the rules whenever they want to.
0: You say it from a place of love is what
1: you're saying. <laughs> I, I do. Well, I do
0: because I've been on both yes. sides of it, you know? Yep.
1: So I'm, I'm both a customer and I'm also someone who's part of the ecosystem and I can see the the tension only increasing. Okay. So the last thing I think that I was going to bring up um, really, was just kind of like a fun thing where, you know, you, you mentioned on the show, but I had discovered back in June that Spotify was uh, preparing its own ticketing oh, service. Yes.
0: Yes. Yeah.
1: I talk about a different kind of uh Uh, antitrust context uh, because I believe is it live nation that owns Ticketmaster? or Are these separate companies? I forget. One of them is a monopoly. (laughs) Um,
0: I I think it, it, whatever it is, it's a monopoly. Even if it's changed hands or changed names, it's still a monopoly. Yeah.
1: So, you know, uh, just to provide some context, Spotify, I think, I don't know. I I watch that company very closely. Like I watch Apple. Um, I have a lot of respect for for their, their design. I know a lot of people were up in arms about Spotify adding podcasts, but it has become my podcast player. And I think it's, it's, it's gotten very good. Um, The, the way that they are very focused and iterate constantly, you know, and learn I think is, is pretty profound and their recommendations are quite good. I mean, it's, you know, I don't really use TikTok that much, but in terms of content recommendations on Spotify, I feel like, you know, I go to Spotify and I get great stuff that I like, um, even if I didn't hear about it or know about it before. So, anyways, Spotify has been moving very hard towards you know creators, creator monetization. Of course, we had Mike Mignano, founder of uh, Anchor, um, on the show before, and you know Spotify has been doing a bunch of interesting things to support the the creator world. Um, of course, they have to deal with all the different types of creators, from musicians to podcasters to soon audiobook um, and book authors, um, and uh, the Spotify tickets thing, uh, which I believe you can get to, what is it? Tickets.spotify.com. I don't know. It's something like that. Uh, yeah. Tickets.spotify.com. Um, you know, they, they, uh, a couple, uh, a couple weeks, months ago, they added, uh, live events. So if you search for live events in the app, you can now see, uh, shows that are in your area that might be relevant to you based on the music that you listen to the very adjacent, you know, sort of existing expansion and you had the ability to buy tickets, back then um but for you know from um i guess partners songkick or ticketmaster or other folks and now with tickets.spotify.com you can actually go in and purchase tickets directly through spotify itself so spotify becomes the ticket handler and issuer of those tickets right.
0: not you know, an affiliate yeah
1: correct and this to me seems like it's it's a test it's an experiment but it's a really good example of kind of you know, using the position in one space, and you know, Spotify is never going to have a, a native device that they get distributed on. Of course, they tried that with Car Thing. Car Thing has now been discontinued. It's fifty percent off, from from what I know. Um, and so, they need to find other ways of, you know, getting some margin from the types of purchase the purchases that happen around the media that they distribute. So, uh, Spotify tickets, I think, is a pretty interesting uh, move in that direction.
0: It, it, I mean, it reminds me of. Folks like you and I have thought from day one, well, eventually Spotify's play is to kill the record labels and mm. be the platform for the artists uh, <laughs> cutting out the middleman. And it, in a weird way, like over the last few years, we feel like that's gone away because they made moves in that direction. And basically we're like, yeah, this isn't going to play. And so they, they've, they've, they've gone in the podcasting direction because it's like, for various rights issues and, and margins mm-hmm. issues, that's the easier way to go. But you finding this and, and them going in this direction reminds me that that doesn't mean that they're, they don't want to do that in the end. <laughs> they're still, they still might be playing the, the, the quiet long game here.
1: Well, um, you know, the thing that I was thinking about uh, when we were talking to Noah, you know, is about where there is um, kind of, I don't know, you know, fat in the system uh, where there's essentially kind of, you know, these middle tiers or middle layers or bureaucracy, that are human APIs. And I know this gonna sound very, you know, crass to, to a lot of people, but you know, hear me out. Um, where, you know, record labels and the record business or the talent business or the creative business has a lot of people who are kind of curators that move people through a system or through kind of a, I don't know, you find someone who's like a gem, who's like really, really talented, really, really good. The question is, you know, there's a lot of people who are who are good and they may not be great. So how do you filter those folks up into the right place? in the let's say music business where they can be discovered where they can get their music out there where they can you know get the kind of management that they might need to actually you know be turned into someone that could be even greater and reach a broader audience and i think there's a kind of machinery that needs to exist out there uh, to support people like that and my, my, my question i guess is if you were to reimagine what a label is and should do in the modern era you know how much would it look like spotify Or how much would it look like something else?
0: When you use code RIDE at checkout, that's 20% off your order at CutsClothing.com with promo code RIDE. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Experience the perfect blend of style and comfort with Cuts Clothing. CutsClothing.com, promo code RIDE for 20% off. Okay, it's time to commit. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Did, didn't I do that story about how all of the artists are mad because the labels are basically pushing them to do mm. uh, TikTok stuff? Right, right. And and, right. and my thought when I read that was like, so wait, what you're saying is promotion and artist discovery. It's it's basically A and R. And so if if all of a sudden <laughs> in the modern world, like what what is a label? I know that the label essentially signs people, gives you an advance, and that advance uh, finances you know the production of your first album or single or things like that, but. On the back end of that, it was always like, and we're the people that will get you discovered. We're the people that will get you played. And so, like you're saying, Spotify has that. TikTok has that. And essentially, the artists or the the, the labels are just there pushing people yeah. to go to where the actual discovery is and the promotion is. And so they...
1: Look, if, I mean, if, it's, it's, it's merchandising. Yeah. You know, I think this is one of the the things that is a little bit hard to sort of imagine because it's very easy to, I don't know, like. For example there's a great show on hbo called vinyl and it kind of like shows you this you know uh, glamorous cocaine soaked world of you know punk rock um i think of the, the early 80s or something and that world is very easy to imagine that that is how the music business works and i'm sure that is how it operated before but i think we're in a world now that is actually quite different it's much more programmatic it's much more formulaic um you know there are kind of like these collabs that happen but then there's a bunch of folks kind of around i mean like for example if you stay to the end and watch the credits in a movie Right, we're talking like thousands of people who put these things together. I mean, it's not. I mean, it may not be exactly the same, but I imagine that there's a similar apparatus that supports, you know, bands and musicians uh, that you know tour international stage or whatever. And I don't know, maybe I'm completely off off base here, but I guess I just it feels like what Spotify does, and to a lesser degree, Apple Music, maybe more like TikTok, maybe more like YouTube, is that they provide a mechanism by which kind of like these saplings can put their stuff out there. You know, can kind of develop an audience and then there are those you know folks who are a little bit further along down the journey that can then pluck them up and then you know provide that i don't know mentoring tutoring it's not too dissimilar from like an angel investor that you know plays a similar role for startup founders who are just trying to like figure things out they've got a good idea they got a perspective they got some grit and they want to make something you know but they don't know or they don't have all the answers because they've been focused on that one thing this whole time and there's all these these business questions that, that have to be resolved And so I think Spotify wants to sort of be a partner, um, that is seen as being, I don't know, like, you know, the fact that, that they come out of, is it Sweden? Um, you know, like they have kind of a Swedish approach to competition. Um, and you know, as long as everyone is kind of a little bit unhappy with Spotify, I think that they're probably doing the right thing, you know, because everybody wants a little bit more and they're saying, well, no, 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 we're balancing a marketplace, um, where there are all these different interests. And of course the artists want to get paid more. And of course the labels want to get paid more. And of course, like the fans want to pay less. Um, but it's, I guess it's happening in um, the streaming world, too. Um, you know, we, we don't like go down that path, but I think it is interesting to, th- to think about that. Uh, one other thing that I'll add to this, um, and this, this hopefully will turn into a future uh, guest and show, um, is Spotify has, has also just uh, announced or, I guess, released a new feature of Soundtrap. And Soundtrap, I think, is essentially their web-based version of, let's say, GarageBand. And so it is a tool for composing and mastering music as well as podcasts on the go. I I don't know what the relationship is between Soundtrap and Anchor. Um, We'll have to get that resolved. But uh, what they've added is kind of a a way to fork other people's music. As essentially like GitHub, it's like an open source project. Mm. You take Mm. some of this music, you fork it, you make your own version of it. Um, And then you can also add in and layer in collaboration. And so that is one major piece that GarageBand is lacking. So for example, you know when I'm gonna like take this recording and put it into GarageBand and do some cutting and editing, um, I don't have the ability to add you to that uh, track and to do live collaboration. But that's what this Soundtrap new release does. So I think it's gonna be very interesting to see. I mean, if I look at what I'm seeing with Figma um, and GitHub and other types of tools, and we talked about this with the Arc browser, that assume collaboration as a first-class feature It'll be really interesting to see this brought to audio, um, and especially for Spotify to do this. And then eventually, if that ends up at the Spotify app itself, um, in other words, they distribute the ability to create and edit and produce podcasts within Spotify. And I know that they're actually doing this test in New Zealand. Um, that may be a real game changer in terms of the content that uh, we start to see showing up there.
0: Okay, number one, uh, mashups. Mashups, the, the dream of the early aughts is uh, ah, alive. Right. yes. Uh, number two, someone tell Griffin Newman that Chris says vinyl was a great show because I don't think anyone <laughs> believes that vinyl was a great show. I thought it was great. Uh, Did you watch it? Did you see it? I watched the first three episodes and <laughs> okay. listen, uh, uh, by the way, Griffin will tell you that it uh-huh. was not a great show, but by the way, uh, great podcast, uh, um, uh, blank check with Griffin and David. Uh, hmm. they're starting a mini series on, um, um, what's his name? Uh, the shining and, uh, uh, I can't oh, think of his name. Oh, yeah, yeah.
1: Um, yeah, okay. I, I forget his uh, name, too.
0: 2001. Why can't I think of his name? Anyway. Kubrick. They, they, Kubrick. Kubrick. They're, they're starting, people have been asking them for a decade to do a Kubrick miniseries, and they just started one, so uh, blank check with Griffin and David. Great podcast. Um, and then I forget what the number three was, <laughs> uh, but whatever. All right, so last thing, um, I wanted you to ask me about my uh, MacBook air purchase.
1: Yes. That that was, that was the last thing Mm
0: -hmm. I'm going to, I'm going to say something real quick, which is that uh, the, the, the revolution in my workflow that I thought I was going to get with the Mac studio has come with the Mac MacBook air. Like it is such a joy to use that. I almost wish I was still a a laptop first person. Um, Fast, Keyboard is the greatest Mac keyboard I've ever. I know. Used. I heard
1: you say that. Now I really want to try it.
0: Um, and uh, you know all the usual things. Build quality is fantastic. Uh, Screen fantastic, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I, I don't regret my Mac Studio. I don't regret having a 38-inch monitor in front of me right now. So mm-hmm. I'm still, I'm still hashtag uh, desktop <laughs> life. But um, uh, the 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 point that I wanted to make, aside from the fact that the MacBook Air is fantastic, mm. is uh we are really you know Apple screwed us for half a decade with their shitty laptops and their shitty keyboards and things like that but they're screwing everybody right now um, by not going to Uh USB-C next month Uh
1: Uh
0: Um, because at this point you know uh, every laptop every computer that I have USB-C every device might you know My kids' uh, iPads are USB-C. My my daughter's Kindle is USB-C. Everything is USB-C. And from what I understand from Mark Gurman and et cetera, et cetera, they're not going to do the USB-C move for the iPhone till next year at the earliest, right? Yeah. So so essentially what they're going to do next month is they're going to give us the next generation AirPods, which will still be Lightning, Mm-hmm. And so then, <laughs> wait, wait, wait,
1: AirPods Lightning? What do you mean?
0: The, uh, the oh, you know, the, the case, the
1: charging case, the uh,
0: charging case. Right. Okay. So mm-hmm. think about this. Think about this. If you were to buy an iPhone next month when when they have the event, and yeah. you buy AirPods, mm-hmm. I can never remember—is it AirPods or AirPods? I can't remember. Anyway, um, both of those things you're going to want to buy next year because they're going to go to USB-C, mm. and that is shitty. At this point, because it is we we have crossed the threshold where the whole rest of the world is USBC, and the fact that we're going to have to endure lightning for one more cycle is I don't
1: know. you know my my I, like I on the one hand I want to like I have empathy for what you're saying on the other hand I I will also and I, I suppose this is sort of so so I, I have a kind of relationship with Nomad um they they make these mm. great. Charging devices, um, great cables, uh, really cool. And anyways, my point is that, and I know we're always trying to like psychoanalyze like Apple and what they're doing, uh, but one, there's like inventory. Two, there's like all the peripherals and all the connections and all the other downstream, uh, you know, kind of partner devices, like Apple certified devices that would need to move over to USB-C,
0: right? To get ready for that. By the, by the end of this year, I think... The majority of the iPad lineup will be USB-C.
1: Yeah. So 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 anyway, so I'm saying like that. This this is all a multi-year transformation. Now, I'm sure that there's some proprietary aspect to why Apple wants to stay with Lightning. Um, You know, I don't know if there's patents or whatever. Um, I don't know if there's you know charging and power. I don't know if it's about the chips. Whatever it is, I'm sure there's some spreadsheet that kind of like rationalizes a lot of this. I guess my point though is that if they're able to know that there's enough Qi and wireless charging out there that by the time they are forced you know, by the EU, let's say, because there's the whole e-waste uh, role right, right. that is gonna impose USB-C on you know, companies, <laughs> then for the most part, people are gonna be able to do wireless charging anyways. And so it won't matter as much to people who have you know, a whole you know, drawer of lightning-based you know, peripherals and devices because you can just do wireless. So for example, for my AirPods, like you mentioned, like I rarely actually plug them in ever. Mm, mostly mm. i do wireless charging same thing for my phone so if we move to a world where i'm actually using my uh, lightning adapter a lot less and i'm just using wireless charging your advocacy for USB-C is actually a lot less relevant to me personally now i know that you know i've got the luxury of having these you know devices that do wireless charging but what i'm saying is that wireless charging might get good enough you know between now and you know the next year or something or already is good enough that the 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 wire Actually becomes a lot less important to this whole argument.
0: The, uh, I, I I did a story like a year ago where uh, there's so much energy loss, like you know uh, this from yeah, yeah. from charging on wireless that it's it's a wired charge is faster. Number one, if you want to get your device charged,
1: I'm not going to argue quickly, whether it's like better yeah. or worse. Like also like and data then, data transfer speeds. Yeah. I do plug in my phone plenty. Yeah. You know, and I know the speed of USB-C, so I'm not arguing that level of performance. I'm saying for the average user that has a few USB, or or I'm sorry, lightning chargers around, it's gonna be expensive and annoying to have to change. It's gonna be worse than uh, the headphone gate. You know when they remove the headphone jack.
0: So oh, see, I am completely I am I'm, I'm uh, uh radicalized on this where <laughs> I, I, like you I would like to have every surface be you know wireless charging capable. You know you see that in airports now where you yeah, you, you, yeah. you put it down on a thing, but but uh it's egregious to me that uh every the, the when I travel with the family. And Papa is in charge of charging twelve devices. Oh,
1: I see. Okay, I can
0: charge yeah. everything now at this point, including with my laptops. Yeah, with mm-hmm. USB-C. And the one, the two things that I have to worry about because mm-hmm. even, even, even the Apple Watch, you have a USB-C cable that connects to the to the wireless charging mm-hmm. for your watch. But so my point is, uh, it's egregious to me that the iPhone and the um, AirPods, AirPods uh, are still lightning and I, I I'm radicalized. I won't back down on that. <laughs>
1: you, you can, you can go to your grave on that one. That's all right. I, I'm not going to fight. Uh, you that I'll, hard. I'll
0: die. I'll die on that. hill. Yes. <laughs> okay. All right. Great. Chris. Yes. We did Brian, it. We did, we did it. it. Another Good job. one.
1: All right. Well, thank uh, you everybody for tuning in. Eh, uh, yes. Oh, and next week. Our,
0: I was going to say, uh, you're going to be here next week. I will. So in Siri, uh, theory. depending on how it works out, we should have a, an episode in person. So
1: that yeah. is the hope. And it'll probably be on Tuesday. So, uh, that might be a okay. day for people. So yeah.
0: Right, right, right. Okay. okay. Uh, I love everybody. I love you, Chris, mm-hmm. and, um, will uh, see you next week.
1: All right. Love you, buddy. Talk to you later. Later. Bye everybody.